Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Wrist Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Ryman, and today I'm joined by my co-host and our resident troublemaker, Alex, the watch regulator. Hey, Alex, how are you? I'm good, Roman. I'm really good. I'm glad to, to be on your show now. It's great when I don't have to do any editing and recording and stuff, and I can just relax a little bit. So I'm looking forward to the, to the show tonight. Yeah. Well, we're responding to the many, you know, fan requests for our two shows to intersect. Well, when I say many, it's more like one, but still, hello, thank you yeah. for writing in. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's No, that's really cool. No, pleasure to be doing this with you. And we've got a super show coming up. I'm really, really excited about this. Now, we've got a somebody local to, you know, to introduce, which is awesome. So I can actually say g'day to our guest. <laughs> hello, Josh. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, not a worry. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. It's it's just a pleasure to be uh, part of this. Oh, that, that's awesome. Now, Josh, do you want to introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and that kind of stuff? That'd be awesome. My name's Josh Hacko, and I am the technical director of Nicholas Hacko Watchmaker. We're a small and independent watch manufacturing uh, company in sydney australia so we're the first and only watchmakers in the i guess maybe more truer sense of the word making watches in australia and uh i'm the fourth generation which is quite exciting it was sort of thrust upon me i'm the fourth generation uh in my family that does watchmaking that's awesome now would you did you want to do watchmaking or did you really want to be a lawyer and you know fourth generation you're like there's no choice <laughs> Uh, I truthfully, actually, I did want to be a lawyer. Um, late stages <laughs> of high school, Suits had just come out, which is kind of that law-based TV show, and I got hooked on the and like all the all the fancy dinners and all that sort of stuff. And I said, "Hey, if I want opulence, I gotta I gotta get myself this law degree." And I worked towards a law degree, and uh, didn't quite get all the requirements straight out of high school, and. Uh, said well the next best option is for, for opulence is to do watchmaking and that was a massive mistake <laughs> there's no opulence in this side of the watchmaking <laughs> i guess all the companies have their opulence um no but truthfully i did, I did mechanical engineering <laughs> and uh that sort of led me down the watchmaking path but that path had started a long time before university and kind of higher education i um I uh, was born really into the workshop and every day after primary school, I mean, mum and dad didn't, didn't really have a lot of spare time outside of work. So uh, I sort of had to go to work before, uh, like straight after school, I had to go to work um, at maybe age six or seven before I could go home. And that meant that my afternoon was always occupied by uh, a workshop visit and then that workshop visit turned into working at like the ripe old age of 10 during the school holidays at, at our workshop and I keep saying workshop it was it was like a back then we were in a in a suburb of Sydney called Mossman 
and we did mainly buying and selling secondhand watches and watch repair. Those were the two things that we did. And uh, we had a very small workshop in the back just with some kind of manual machines. And uh, I spent all the time there. So then when 14 and 15 came along, um, dad, Nick, he sort of planted the idea of watchmaking, but he didn't push it. He didn't force it at all. And uh, I developed a really keen interest in it. I thought that it was like the best thing on the planet. And I loved playing Lego. And this seemed like just miniature Lego. And uh, Mm -hmm. long story short, after I finished up with mechanical engineering, uh, actually a little bit before that, I started getting very heavily involved in the business. And uh, we started equipping our workshop in Brookvale in Sydney buying machines and all that sort of stuff uh, in preparation to make watches in Australia. That's super cool. No, that's really, really cool. Uh, lots to unpack there, and I'm sure we'll dive straight into it. Now, I always forget to do this bit, but we probably should. Um, shall we do some wrist checks and drink checks? I can almost sense Alex's disapproval because I feel like I've missed that bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 at all. It's your show, Roman. Do, do, do whatever you want. I'm just happy to be here and listen. Yeah, please tell us what you're wearing, Alex. Is, is it a grass skirt again? Is that okay? <laughs> the, uh, no, I'm still in my dressing gown. Um, I'm wearing my birth year Speedmaster one four five zero two two, and you'll like this, Roman. I'm wearing it on a lovely Geneva blue strap that Rob sent me in the post. So I've been, I haven't had much else on other than this watch the last, last couple of days because I'm trying to break in this really thick strap that, that Rob very kindly sent me. So thanks, Rob. No, it's the asbestos, isn't it? That makes it extra stiff. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> and do you want on my drink as well? Are we doing... I've got a very, very large glass of Shiraz. Um Grant's Shiraz, which sounds like a Scottish brand of, of wine, so that can't be right, but yeah, I'm on the Shiraz. Oh, well, now, you say really large glass, that's more like a vase, isn't it? It's a, I don't I know, but Josh, Josh maybe doesn't know. I didn't want to scare him off. I'm drinking a, nearly a pint of, of Shiraz then, okay, if we want to be accurate about it. What about you, Josh? I'm always I'm always curious to hear what watchmakers wear on their wrists. So, what have you got on your wrist today? Um, <laughs> no, I, I know what it is. It's no watch at all, is it? it? It's very embarrassing, but I can't afford one of the watches that I make, and uh, I'm getting I'm getting married at the end of the year, so I have to <laughs> save all the money I can for the wedding. So I can't I can't even afford a bloody. watch. No, I think the excuse should be you've sold out all the watches you've made. It's not that you can't afford them. It's just they sell out so quick. You just, you know, they never last long enough. See, Roman, this is this is the depressing thing I have to deal with at work when none of the watchmakers wear watches. So I, I knew as soon as Josh was like, oh, I thought he's definitely not wearing a watch. <laughs> but truth be told, um, I, I do like wearing some watches. Uh, I like wearing the Mark One that we make. Uh, which is kind of like a 40 millimeter uh, pilot style watch. Um, it sits on my wrist. I, I think anything larger than 40 mil doesn't sit on my wrist quite perfectly. But in saying that, um, there was a period uh, at school. <laughs> this is a, a long time ago. This is probably the last time I consistently wore a watch. 
And uh, dad sort of started as a watch dealer. So he had, you know, like more than a, more than 500 watches uh, a year just pass through and uh, pick what I wanted. And that's, I guess, where the desensitization came from. I didn't really like watches because I saw all of them. I saw what there was to see. But I started wearing a 5513 to school every single day. And I was in, what, like year 10 <laughs> or something like that. And uh, that was the last time I consistently wore a watch. It was far above my pay grade. That is a boss move in year 10. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and um, I'm drinking a Free Boss tea, which is um, quite lovely, actually. Plenty of sugar to keep me awake. What are you drinking? Tea? But it's what time is it there? Is, is it is only morning in Sydney? I don't understand why people aren't drinking alcohol at this time. <laughs> uh, no. It's, uh, well, I don't drink. I have to keep my hands steady. And uh, the last thing I want is to turn, you know, in 50 in my prime time for watchmaking and have health issues but that hasn't stopped me eating mcdonald's every day so that i don't know where that's coming from to be honest <laughs> roman what have you done you've got a, a watchmaker on he's not wearing a watch and he doesn't drink <laughs> but, no, but, but i was just gonna say is the tea at least in a pint glass i mean you know we've got a we've got a reputation to uphold here josh <laughs> it's, it's totally fine and what do you mean the what the peak the watchmaking period is 50 i thought at 50 you retire and get the you know the understudies to do all the work you put your feet up look at i mean look at george daniels though his his prime time was the day before he died so you, you, with watchmaking mm-hmm. i think well that's <laughs> depressing i'm sorry that is <laughs> too depressing but <laughs> it's fine totally fine no, i'm a big fan of daniels but you'll probably look so what you're saying is it's an endless journey towards perfection which you never attain is that absolutely yes Alrighty, well, look, so let's dive into kind of your family history. I mean, your dad, Nick, is a legend in sort of certainly in the Australian watch scene as well. Now, so you are fourth generation, is that right? So so Nick was third generation? Correct, yes. So what were the origins? You know, how did kind of, because you sort of don't associate watchmaking with Australia, or at least I don't, you know, traditionally. So what do you think kind of what gave the roots to the family trade, I guess, in a sense? Well, dad moved to Australia in 1992. So he is uh, half Croatian, half Serbian, and he lived in uh, ex-Slavia, right on the border, actually, of Croatia and Serbia, about 20 kilometers from the border. And uh, in the early 90s, it wasn't a pleasant place to be. And he came as a... No, it was that awful war, of course. uh, ...to Australia. So he had... uh, I guess his roots planted in a more European educational system for watchmaking. Um, his father uh, trained as a watchmaker back when watchmakers were very desirable because the amount, the volume of watches was much higher. This was pre-quartz and um, watches were cheap, so they were produced in volume. So you had to uh, have a lot of watchmakers to repair them. And so that's my granddad. He, um, he actually went to Germany and worked, uh, I'm not a thousand percent sure who he worked for, but he went to Germany to work for a German watchmaker. And uh, six months after he moved to Germany, my dad was born. So he had to come back to Serbia and, uh, or Yugoslavia back then, and um, continue the trade sort of, mm. uh, in his own country. And then his father, so that's my great-grandfather now, uh, was 
based in Croatia. So it was all, you know, you can tell it's all sort of mixed. Um, and he was a watchmaker. Now, I have to get this right. It was 1953, I believe. I'm not 1,000% sure on the date, but it's around, it's like mid-50s, early to mid-50s. And he was a watchmaker. He's 93 this year, and he's still repairing clocks. So uh, it's it's a Amazing. pretty rich history, yeah. And presumably still getting better and better with each repair given our previous trajectory talk that's awesome that's a, i mean that's amazing i mean so yeah so so when you say you know watchmaking is in your blood very much so <laughs> that, that's incredible um so you so your family settles in australia in the early 90s and was pretty much watchmaking kind of what they what your dad knew he was going to do and pushing forward that was sort of you know was that always the plan um i'm not a thousand percent sure because there was a little period uh, when he first came where he didn't know if he could be a watchmaker really in Australia. Um, you need a little bit of capital behind you to set up your own shop or, you know, if you, if you work for someone else, I guess it's a different story. But dad was always an entrepreneur. He very, you know, rarely worked sure. for other people and he wanted to set up his own shop. So he, he couldn't straight away from immigration or uh, I guess a start just set up your own uh, shop so um, he um, he painted for a bit uh, with my uh, uncle and uh, then he worked for a watchmaker in Parramatta which is kind of in in the center of Sydney for about I want to say nine months um, and that got him on his feet and then mm. after that he uh, split and started his own shop in Parramatta and since then, it was always, uh, I guess, focused on watchmaking. So, it, I mean, some delineation is probably necessary here. It wasn't watchmaking in, in the making sense of the term. It was watch repair and uh, buying and selling watches and overhauls and restoration jobs as well. Sure. And watchmaking too. And uh, that continued on. Mm, so sort of trade repairs and... Yeah. yeah, trade repairs and all that sort of stuff. And that continued on until about 2011, 2012, when we sort of started this project, which is the kind of second phase. But his his goal was always to stay within... I, I, I'm not 1,000% I'm not sure if I'd say watchmaking, but luxury goods. Uh, because if it wasn't watchmaking, he'd probably be in antiques or if it wasn't antiques it'd be in jewelry um uh, he had that rich mm. history behind him from serbia that's kind of all he did he you know moved on uh moved in in different fields uh, but all in that luxury good scene yeah fascinating so what do you think was the impetus in 2011 to, to actually you know go from you know, repairs, you know, certainly a successful second-hand watch business, successful repair business to really actually go into the making of the watchmaking, if you know what I mean. Yeah. What do you think was the spur to sort of really start that? Well, we didn't have very much choice, actually. Um, in 2011, nearly every single watchmaker in Australia lost their access to spare parts and i'm talking about independent watchmakers so this is kind of your um wow your your watchmakers that don't work for large companies so i 
I'm not sure how much uh, you want me to say in terms of like brand names and stuff, but it's any anyone big. Go for it. Oh, go for it. Okay. <laughs> Anything yeah. you say, we can either edit out or, no. you know, all, Robert Geneva Blue underwrites our legal. So it's say all, whatever you like. It's all staying in tonight, Rob. <laughs> it's all staying in tonight. Okay, good. Well, uh, so go for it if you like. Rolex uh, was the first company in 2011 to uh, stop the supply of spare parts to watchmakers. So what that meant was that if you weren't part of the Rolex official service network, um, really meaning if you didn't work at Rolex, you weren't given access to spare parts. And uh, that happened more or less overnight. There was a watchmaker in Sydney called Max Schweitzer, he was, uh, I think, a year off retirement in 2011, um, sort of early 60s. He was planning to retire for quite a long time and he was, you know, comfortable and ready and they cut the supply of spare parts to him uh, and most notably to him as he was a, uh, he was the service manager for Rolex Egypt for, I think, something along along the lines of a whole decade swiss born moved to was the, wow. the uh, service manager there and then moved to sydney and started up his own independent watch uh, watch repair business with his son ralph and uh they cut the supply of spare parts to him so really we had no choice we didn't really have a very strong connection with rolex um and if they cut supply to him they would have you know thrown us off the bridge kind of thing and uh, that cut our yeah, that cut our uh, repairs side of the business probably in half overnight, um, just from Rolex withdrawing. And within six months, uh, Richmond and uh, Swatch Group also withdrew at, at sort of varying levels, but it became much more difficult to uh, source spare parts. And uh, the kind of the, the hammer the last hit of the hammer on the nail was um, when Nick emailed. Oh, actually, sorry. It was a phone call. (laughs) Uh, He sent a phone call. uh, Sorry. Nick phoned the Rolex manager in uh, for service in Sydney and said, Hey, look, I've got a son. He's, you know, middle of high school and he's thinking of becoming a watchmaker. Um, I know you cut the supply of spare parts to all of the independent watchmakers here in Sydney and Australia. But, you know, my son is at the age where he can pick up the trade. If I sent him to Switzerland and I trained him up and I bought all the tools and uh, I did everything to the T, would you supply spare parts to him? You know, as a, as a trained Rolex sort mm. of uh, service. Yeah, would he pass your bar of, that's Correct. right. Yeah, you're still And we one. got an email back and uh, the, the, the long, the, sorry, the short of the email was, this sentence and it said no Australian watchmaker will ever be good enough to repair a Rolex watch. And, uh, that was, was like salt in the wounds and uh, wow. dirt in the face. Um, and so dad said, screw this. Like, I'm not going to even uh, like bother with Rolex. Like they can repair their own watches and they can lie in the bed they make and to sort of rebel and have a big middle finger to Rolex. Uh, he said, well, okay, you might think that I'm not able to repair a watch, but I'm going to make a watch, you know, instead and show it to you and, and uh, I guess start this whole process to prove myself to the Swiss. Fantastic. I mean, spite is always a great motivator for things, but... I love spite. 
<laughs> and I think your story, Josh, really exemplifies what in my mind is the problem with the close-mindedness of the industry. Mm. You know, which thing is a, is, a, is a really terrible thing. So is that where the name of the brand came from, the rebelled? Was that sort of the origin of that word? That's right, yeah. Um, Dad grew up obviously in a communist country and uh, his idols growing up were like Che Guevara and uh, th- that whole <laughs> wow. big like rebellion, like macho man, um, uh, like fight against the system sort of hero. And he uh, sort of drew parallels from that fight to his own fight and named the first, uh, well, actually it was the whole brand was called Rebelde and it was Spanish for rebellion. Ah, right. <laughs> That's great. Range. So when we released the NH series and uh, started doing the Manufactured in Australia project, we said the first 800 watches that we sold under the Rebelde name, we sort of turned it into a you know, model range and that's been, you know, immortalized, I guess. And uh, we, we're we still sort of making those watches, but they're very much to order. So, you know, if the customer wants a Rebelde watch, we'll make it for them. But we're focusing our attention to the Manufactured in Australia side. And uh, yeah, that I guess that's a little bit of the tidbit of the story. It's um, It's, it's pretty unique. That's a great origin story. Yeah, absolutely. That's and thank you very much for sharing it with us. I think that's a great story with you know with sort of a dispiriting bit in the middle and sort of a really positive ending. I was just going to say it's a bit like the kind of David versus Goliath type thing, but David didn't just come back with a, a slingshot. He's like he's he's thinking much bigger than that, and he's been motivated to go above and above and beyond and. I think it's. I'd be interested to see how things would have played out if the supply had stayed the same for the for for your spare parts and stuff, and if things would eventually have progressed to where they are just now. I kind of doubt it from seeing things, videos and stuff with with your dad. It definitely seems like it's almost like a boxer that's been had had that punch that one punch that that's kind of got their their back up and they've said like okay let's let's do this and it's driven them on to actually yeah create something create a legacy um which i think is great but i, I don't think from the brands that roman you're saying it's kind of what do you say close close mindedness i think it's more like r- racketeering or something the fact that they can squeeze people out and it, it it did seem like it was just a one day everyone can get parts, the next day everyone's cut off type of deal. That's that's the way it seemed to me anyway. And it was it felt a bit like a kind of conspiracy or something that okay now we're we're all doing everything in house. We don't want anyone else to to touch our stuff. Like from tomorrow, those times are over, and, and these people are just going to have to kind of deal with it, even though they've been a huge part of the the watch industry for. For generations and generations. Absolutely. I think the uh, the decisions that Rolex and Richmond and the Swatch Group and all those other big players made was driven by Swiss corporate greed. And I don't shy mm. away from saying that because I've seen it firsthand and they freely admit to it. It's not as if, you know, that they're ashamed of that. If they can make a buck somewhere, they will. But it's the, it's frustrating because it's short uh, it's short-sightedness combined with the corporate greed. Because in the long term, uh, they're actually going to create a massive, and they have, it's not as if this is speculation, they have made a massive problem for themselves because thousands and thousands of watches were being repaired by 
uh, independent watchmakers, thousands of Rolexes never made it to service centers. And uh, now they've had to deal with this influx and you only have to go to your closest Rolex friend owner if you have any friends that own Rolexes and ask them how long it... God, no. Yeah, God, no. No friends that... <laughs> no friends or no friends that own Rolexes? <laughs> Both. Not even acquaintances. I just cut them out of my life immediately. Uh, yeah, but like the service times in a Rolex are ridiculous. So, and that's, and that's a direct uh, correlation with the lack of supply or the restriction of the supply of spare parts to independent watchmakers. Yeah, and it's the lack of respect that I, that, I mean, what really angers me in that kind of decision is this lack of respect for watchmaking as a craft. One thing to go, well, we're a brand and it's fine, but it sort of runs counter to a lot of the narratives that, or certainly the marketing narratives that a lot of the brands are pushing, you know, whether it's, you know, you're not owning a whatever, you're just merely holding it for the next person to pay the repair bill on yeah. or whatever the marketing slogan is, mm. you know cutting out the people who actually have invested decades of training experience and all that mm. into servicing and learning the products that you make. It's just disrespectful, you know, across mass. But so, but look, let's sort of move to sort of the, what I'm sort of really interested in is kind of you as fourth generation, you and your dad working together. I mean, the equipment that you guys have and the manufacturer in the true sense of the word that you have established in Australia is, is amazing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, what can you make? What are you making now? You know, what amazing stuff goes on in Sydney? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for the compliment. Firstly, Roman, that's a very nice thing of you to say. Uh, I guess on your first question, what can we make? With the current setup that we have uh, with our small 140 square meter uh, factory in Brookvale, we can reach about 80 to 90% of the components uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a mechanical wash. So that, that's the manufacture of 80 to 90% of the internal components. And uh, that's what we focused on. We focused on the movement and the internal components. We don't do very much case manufacture. The, the types of machines that you need for, to make cases are a lot bigger. And uh, it's, it's its own field. It's its own beast. Um, and we haven't tackled that yet. But uh, notwithstanding, we can do prototyping for the cases, but we've focused on the internal components of a watch. And to break it down to the nitty gritty, what does that mean? Well, anything, uh, anything except for the jewels, the mainspring, the hairspring, uh, the escapement components. So there's a few components in the actual escapement itself, uh, I'm talking about the hairspring collets. You've got some regulators and kind of balanced staff and roller jewel. Those sort of components are, are very specialized and we won't touch them uh, for the foreseeable future. I think that the cost for investment is, is huge. Uh, companies spend decades and millions of dollars uh, to try to make these components. And truthfully, they're, they're not that expensive to buy as individual parts or to get someone else to make them to your specification. Sure. What we make is we make the main plate, we make the bridges, we make uh, now at least we're starting to make the gear train of the watch. Uh, we're starting to make the the dial and the hands, and we're starting to make uh, a bunch of the, I guess, smaller, less um, less known components. You've got like locating pins in the watch. We've been making them for a while actually, and. Uh, we're constantly experimenting with new materials and 
uh, that sort of stuff. So that's that's what we can make. And I said that 80 to 90% figure at the start. Um, I would say conservatively now, currently we're making just a little bit over 50% of the components. So we've still got, I guess, a lot of headroom in um, our capability. Uh, and that's that's a function of R&D and it's a function of sitting down and plotting out a direction for the company and uh, that will come, <laughs> I guess. But we, we've been around for... That's amazing. I mean... Yeah, uh, it, it is. No, it, um, yeah, we've been around for about four years, I would say, in the manufacturing field, five years, because it took us about a year to sort of set up our factory to, before we even imported a machine. Um, mm. Five years, if you look at how long it takes a Swiss watchmaking company to start from ground up, takes takes about five to six years and we're not in switzerland right we're in we're in the in the boondocks of the world and we (laughs) do what the swiss did in five years in about the same time so i I just uh actually read a little bit of a book on breguet and i'll send you the link roman so maybe if if any of your listeners want want to read it but it's it's actually about yeah please of breguet um in the in the kind of 80s onwards and Breguet was kind of like a nothing brand for such a long time. And uh, these two guys uh, restarted the whole company and it took them 15 years to establish Breguet as a proper brand that was respected by collectors and that had, um, uh, you know, credentials in its manufacture. And uh, like I, I looked at that just... Two, two, three nights ago, and I said, "Well, okay, it's taken us four or five years to to get to where we're at. That's that's pretty good." <laughs> You're on track. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I well, one of the questions I sort of had in the back of my mind to ask you was that sort of you know manufacturing once again in the true sense of you know the the the, the watch industry sense of the word manufacturing making things so far away from Switzerland. You know what were sort of the the difficulties and what were the opportunities that you think are available to you being away from there, you know, are there advantages to being further away? Yeah. The the biggest difficulty is also the biggest advantage. So everything is at minimum two weeks away. So if you want to air freight something in, it's, I mean, you can get it quicker, but not much quicker. So two weeks is what we say is the minimum lead time for anything. That's raw materials, cutting tools, that's a whole machine, you know, anything, two weeks away minimum. Mm. If you want to progress in a, in a sort of industrial manufacture sense or even as like a, a prototyping handmade sort of sense, you want things quickly. You don't want to wait two weeks for every single piece of material. And so that's what the biggest challenge, but it also presents the biggest opportunity because especially for finished parts, um, let me give you an example let's say I draw up a set of hands that I want made and I have a contact in Switzerland that can make them for me. So it's two weeks for shipping. If he has like my design already in stock, which is, you know, doesn't, doesn't happen Mm. because they haven't even made it yet. So it's two weeks for delivery, let's say conservatively eight weeks for manufacture. And then another week of fluffing around because their admin team, someone on their like, you know, front desk is sick or something like that. So we're talking at least, three months of waiting for some hands. We sort of got put in a position because we're so far away and because we don't speak French and because we're not Swiss uh, and all the rest that we've sort of been forced to 
band together and make stuff ourselves. And that's the biggest benefit, you know. So the consideration is that you have to have the basic raw materials and you have to have the basic cutting tools and the basic machine and all the rest. But everything else is just up to your imagination and dependent on your skill and your fervor for pushing the boundaries. And so a concrete example is um, about two or three months ago, we started saying, we started really thinking about our next model and uh, sort of chatting about what it will look like. And we said, well, we don't really want to wait for these hands and these dials to come in. And I sort of threw it out and said, well, why don't we just make them? We've got all the stuff here. Sure, we might be limited in our knowledge and our expertise, but that's just a function of time. So we sat down and about a week later, we got our first dial. Look, it, nothing to look at. I wouldn't put it in a watch, but it existed. That's and awesome. it didn't a week before that. And, and sort of that, that limitation that the, that the, that the distance uh, imposes on us forces us to be creative. And I love that. That's awesome. I mean, that, to me, that's, that's a wonderful kind of origin story. And that's, that's why I'm kind of, I'm really passionate about independent watchmakers. But I'm particularly excited about sort of Australian yeah. independent watchmakers. That I mean, that's awesome that it's happening in Sydney, you know, mm. and not in you know Geneva, Zurich, or whatever. That that like that excites me, no end. Um, the stuff that you and so the stuff that you're making, you know, you were saying main plates and you know a lot of large components. Now, do you make them just for yourself? Do you supply others because you've now got a manufacturing base yourself? Like, what's the model for you guys to follow business wise? Business wise, we focus primarily on in-house production. So we've got I, uh, look, I don't know the numbers, but I'd, I'd stab at a guess at like maybe ninety percent or eighty-five percent of the stuff we make is for ourselves in the watchmaking sphere. Uh, and the other 10 to 15% is for other watchmakers. And that's people in Switzerland, people in Germany. I have a good friend in, uh, that that's also your good friend, Roman, uh, Josh Shapiro in the US. Um, I've helped him out with some tools. Yes, I was going to ask about him, but that's good. Yep, go on, tell us more. Josh is a fantastic guy. And uh, if, he, if he does end up listening to this, hi, Josh. Um, really love your work and... and uh, I'll make sure. I'll make sure he does. He's got a baby now, but like a baby's one week old. So he's up at four in the morning anyway. He might as well listen to us. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Josh. Boy, that's right. Yeah, he might as well just listen. So it's, it's, uh, it's not a huge part of our business making parts for other people, but it definitely does happen. And it's a huge compliment uh, because a lot of these watchmakers and, you know, you sign NDAs and you kind of can't talk about who you make stuff for, but a lot of them are, are really quite serious watchmakers and they're putting their trust in someone who's relatively new to the to the field i mean three or four years of experience is not a lot when you compare it to hundreds of years of industrial manufacture in switzerland and all i can put it down to is uh probably two things first is that we're quite cheap <laughs> uh, australian uh kind of wages in comparison to swiss wages are probably not uh, apples and oranges or apples and apples rather apples and oranges absolutely uh, the exchange rate helps with that as well but i'd say another big factor is that uh, we're really proud to to make parts and we're really excited to spend the extra hour the extra minute the extra uh, week thinking about the best way to make a part and uh, the quality sort of speaks for itself we've had you know people come back and say like look 
we can get this made in Switzerland, but the lead time and the price and all of these other things will would have reflected themselves exponentially in the quality of the of the pri- of the piece. So it's you know for the same price they couldn't get the same quality in Switzerland. Mm. Um, so that's a huge compliment. Uh, I mean that's fantastic. I mean that's a huge compliment to you and the work that you and your dad and the team had had done sort of the groundwork in establishing the sort of you know quality assurance and manufacturing base that, that's certainly to your credit for sure and that's that's fantastic and that's why i'm really keen that we i'm really happy that we have you on the show to talk about that because i mean I, i'm super excited about this and i'm sure our listeners will be as well the stuff that you mentioned about sort of experimenting with materials mm. one of the things that i remember seeing on your instagram that sort of blew my mind is is tamascus yeah very mm-hmm. cool which is material I've never seen anywhere else, used anywhere else. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I reckon that would blow people's minds. Yeah, uh, Timascus is is lovely. Um, I, I guess I should start at the start. There's just uh, so much to talk about at the material, but it's a forge-welded tri-alloy or triple-alloy or three-composite alloy of titanium. So you have three different grades of titanium. Usually it's grade two, grade three, five that are sort of i guess heated up in a in a in a really special atmosphere so they don't oxidize and then put under extreme pressure and then forge welded so that means a huge hammer comes down and kind of homogenizes the whole um the whole billet and uh each of timascus that is made is completely individual and the pattern is completely organic and no two pieces of Timascus are the same at all. So it's made by a guy in the in the US, uh, and it's and there's only one person in the whole world that makes it. Um, you have other people that make other titanium alloys, but they're not Timascus. Timascus is kind of like a it's like a trade name, I guess, more than a, a descriptor of what the alloy mm. is. Um, the patterns and the and the composition and the format and all of the things to do with the material are proprietary to this guy in the US. So we we sort of stumbled on that accidentally. We were going through Instagram of all places and one of my good friends is a knife maker and uh, he used the material in one sort of decorative part of the knife. It wasn't the blade, it was some uh, other decorative part of the knife. And I said, I bet I could make a watch out of that or at least a watch movement out of that. <laughs> and that was about a year ago. So um, it, I don't know what to say about it Outside of it's, it was it was the most difficult learning experience I've ever had to go through. Um, working with Timascus wow. is insanely difficult. Uh, the material is, as I said, non-homogeneous. That means there's no consistency in how it twists and bends and moves. It's completely, a, you know, a beast of its own volition, and uh, wow. it doesn't react like traditional watchmaking material so for those who don't uh, know watchmakers use more or less three different materials and there's different flavors of those three materials and i'm talking specifically in the movement of the watch um there's brass there's german silver and there's steel and steel is you know i guess uh split into different categories you've got hardenable steel and then you've got uh stainless based steels with chromium and all the rest um but there's three three main materials, and they're all uh, sort of chosen: brass, German silver, and steel, because they're all homogenous and they react uh, in in natural ways that are predictable, 
actually similarly with gold i should i should mention gold is the same but not many people use gold um fp jean and other small makers aside um it's not too popular for the whole movement long story short timascus is the opposite all of those materials you have internal stresses you have uh unpredictable uh sort of stressed based uh, movements in the actual material so that means if you carve out a little bit of timascus uh, you release some stress in the material and the material will just pop on you will move and we're talking not insignificant movements where you know 40 50 100 microns which uh, you know it might not seem like a lot but that's huge mm. so we sort of started quite uh i guess naively on that journey we said let's let's make something out of Damascus and we'll put it in a watch and i was almost tempted because we uh as some as some sort of a preface to that we made our first movement the nh1 in brass and we gold plated that brass and um, i was almost tempted to use the exact same methods and exact same programs and exact same tools uh that i did for the nh1 for this timascus project pretty much just put the new material in and press go and uh i i did that and promptly broke all my tools and uh, wasted the piece of timascus and so on um so it was it was painfully evident that you could not approach this new material in the same way as you did any other watchmaking material. Um, and that sort of started us on this journey where we really invested in in understanding how to achieve the tolerances that were required in Timascus. And the parts that we're making are also, they're not purely decorative. The main plate of the watch has about 85 features on it that have to be within specification so each one of those features has a tolerance band you know if it's outside of the tolerance band you just simply cannot use it some uh some tolerances are, you know as tight as plus or minus three micron which is uh a 30th of the width of a human hair so where you know where yeah well i saw yeah i think you recently did a post and i encourage everybody all, all of our listeners to go check out your instagram and actually see what it looks like because it will blow your mind what Timascus looks like. Uh, I think you recently did a post where you showed a main plane that was machined and finished and, you know, all redone up. But I think one of the jewel holes was, I think, three microns too wide or something. And you said, well, we can't use it now <laughs> or something, which I thought was fascinating. And I, I posted that on Instagram because I, I wanted to show people that it's not all glory. You know, a lot of people on, on social media just post the highlight reel and, uh, this was actually like a really depressing moment mm. because I'd sunk uh, like 20 hours or so into this part, um, half a week's work. I wow. at the very end that it sort of slipped through the QC process and, uh, and, and made it to mm. assembly with a fault. And uh, I, it's hard because I'd love to say that's, you know, an irregular occurrence, but it, our failure rate, for Timascus is nearly 40%, uh, which is mind-boggling considering wow. how expensive the raw material is. You know, one billet, which might give you two watches, so one billet of, of Timascus can cost up, up to $1,000. So if you're scrapping 40%, it's, uh, <laughs> it gets wow. very expensive very quickly. But I guess it then goes to show that the lucky owners of one of those watches should really appreciate the blood, sweat, and tears that went into the production of that particular one, you know, 
given all the risks and all the things that could go wrong. I mean, that should make the watches even more special than, than they are now. I'd like to think so. And we've got a lot of customers that, uh, that really kind of hone in on that. Uh, when we explain the story and we walk them through the factory if they want to see it and they, they realize really quickly that it's this is like this is blood sweat and tears as you said um and we show them the scraps and we show them hey this could have been your watch but we didn't settle for anything that wasn't perfect for your watch and uh I guess the mentality from where that comes from lies very deeply in the repair side of uh, Nick's business um, or dad's business. He hates seeing watches come back from repairs. It's the worst thing on the planet to send a watch out and a week later, the customer come back pissed off, you know, that his watch isn't working after paying, you know, up to a thousand dollars or more Mm. for an overhaul. Um, And so he wanted to make the watches that we make as robust, reliable, and repairable as possible. So A, robust, if you know something does eventuate in the lifetime of the watch, you hit it somewhere or whatever happens, it, it will survive that. Re- reliable in the sense that it'll keep going for a long period of time in between service intervals and repairable so that uh, when it does come back for an overhaul or for a problem that we don't have an issue. We don't have a, a long lead time where we have to remanufacture something. We've got A, the parts in stock, or B, the parts are simple enough to just uh, uh, repair on site and things like that. So Timascus presented so many problems in that field that like, it's almost impossible to just wrap up in, in, a, in a couple of minutes. Like, it's <laughs> To make something out of Timascus that satisfies, it's impossible. Can we talk about value a little bit? Because I think this is going to be kind of an interesting topic with with your watches when you look at the quality i've never seen one of your watches in 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 person but when you look at the quality of them and i'm sure there are swiss watches that you've seen that you can say that there's comparable uh comparable level of quality there what is the kind of price difference like how much more basically could you charge for your watch if it was being produced in in switzerland and what kind of value proposition to use a overly used hadinki term do your watches represent to collectors out there oh this is such a tricky question you're asking an engineer like money questions it's the wrong i'm the wrong (laughs) it's tough because if i if i say that my my watch is great value for money i sound like a like a, a pretentious watchmaker that thinks his product is the best thing on the planet but truthfully like and and i'd say this you just sound swiss so it's fine just go with it yeah but truthfully as 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 humbly as i can say i'd personally like to think that our watches uh represent the best quality that we can achieve and what does that mean well in comparison and if you made it a comparative sort of study i'd struggle to see how you'd pay less than five figures for a watch of similar quality I only say that on purely on the engineering side and like the process side, because the amount of time it takes to put a product on that top shelf of quality increases exponentially, right? The closer you get to perfection, the longer it takes. And we've set in place um, certain sort of milestones that we have to reach before we ship the product. And if the Swiss were to reach those milestones, their watches would cost in excess of, you know, $10,000 plus. Um, 
when you talk about value, I think when when you talk about value and luxury goods, uh, the conversation starts to get really, really funky really quickly. Yeah. Because uh, the person that paid $150,000 for an Acrivia watch, for example, will always say that their Acrivia watch is the best thing on the planet. But I can tell you now that Acrivia don't make their watches and they only hand finish them. So what what does that mean for the person that spent $150,000 on their watch? Well, in their mind, the value might be associated specifically with their hand finishing, you know, technique and by all means, beautiful hand finishing. But for someone that's maybe uh, interested in the manufacture of a watch, they might say, oh, $150,000, I've been ripped off. They don't even make the bloody thing. Yeah. So I, I, I'm very hesitant to compare ourselves to anyone else because we're five years old. There's companies out there that are hundreds of years old. And if I suddenly say, oh, okay, my, my polishing is as good as Patek Philippe, no one's going to take me seriously. Um, and truthfully, it's probably not as good as a Patek Philippe because they have a dude that's just, you know, dedicated to finishing that, that part for his whole life. So I, 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 it would be stupid for me to even compare. I don't know. I think with when the way you're talking and the, the research I've done on, on you guys, there's, and this is a thing that's a big deal for me, there's an honesty and an authenticity that's there that can't be denied. So when you're talking about other people who just finish the parts, and I've heard that as well from watchmakers that I work with who have friends that work in major high-end watch companies where people think everything is made by hand but they just finish they just same thing they're known for their finishing and they just finish the the parts that's it um so when you're as open i I guess you guys seem a lot like an, an open book to me so i think when you guys you can you're in a position where you can say as long as you're being honest what the the minute you're not being honest then you're done but you can be honest and passionate about about what you're doing and i think that's probably important because it's it is a difficult sell probably for to to a lot of people to spend a, a lot of money for a watch made in australia when they've had such a long period of time with this Swiss made, Swiss made, Swiss made, Swiss made thing, while in the background, the actual authenticity of the Swiss made part of it has been kind of being eroded away. Um, so I guess I was just trying to look uh, kind of behind the curtain, if you like, and 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 help other people see the the value that I think that I think there's value there with with your brand, just from what I've seen and heard. And the time you're you're spending on the individual watches, but I think sometimes it's going to be the communicating that part of it to the the community, mm. getting them over that final hurdle. They might like everything about the watch, but it could just be the made in Australia versus Swiss made part is the the last bit you have to go over. So I think you, you sometimes you'll need a very strong selling point or a very big nudge that you can give them to get them to, to that point, if that makes sense. Well, if you ever want to work in marketing, um, you'll have a great career. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of all the marketers. That's that's why I started the website, was to get rid of all the marketing bullshit and, um, <laughs> and watches. 
Yeah. Well, what I thought was really interesting, Josh, is when you were saying, you know, we're only five years old. I mean, you're only five years old with the four generations of watchmakers and all their experience that's been rolled into the last 70 years, right? So the time, so, so I think, you know, your father's experience and his father's experience and his father's experience before that really rolls into the pinnacle of what you're trying to do now because I, I in certainly in my mind, I can see a direct link to you now manufacturing stuff in Australia to this incredible degree all the way back to, you know, the watchmakers in Croatia or Serbia really thinking about, hey, what could we do as the best possible thing? How would we move this forward? So I think there's a definite narrative there in that direction for sure. So just thinking about your watch, so could you tell us, so what sort of your, what's your annual production? Like how many pieces do you guys make? You know, are they available? What's the waiting list? How do we get our, you know, how do we get more more watches on more wrists? Essentially is what I'm trying to get at. Actually, you know what? I'll answer it very simply and then I'll go on a spiel. Uh, we make about 50 watches a year and of those 50, uh, that's specifically the manufactured in Australia watches. Sorry, I should clarify again. About 50 watches we make here in Australia. And of the 50, uh, nearly all of them sell out because they're, well, they don't really sell out. They're, they're kind of commissions or custom orders, or you have a person saying, I want you to make me a watch and so on and so on. But our production capability for this year is 50, 50 pieces. For next year, it might increase to about 100. Um, but that would, you know, that's a that's a sort of a difficult task, and I'm not promising or saying or anything like that that they would ever get to a hundred. That's my goal. Uh, and the reason why it's a difficult question is because uh, we spent so much time sort of getting ourselves to the position that we're in now that if we make one watch and you say, okay, how how, how long does it take to make a watch, or how many watches do you make a year? I'd have to divide that one watch over like four years. And so if you look at our annual production for the last you know, five years we've been manufacturing, and it gets even worse if you th- look back at it over four generations, but um, over five years, we make like oh, I don't know, 12 or 13 watches per year. Um, <laughs> and that's what probably, like that's probably what the actual answer is because for three years we didn't make a single watch. We, um, we just made parts and we tried to see if the parts worked and they didn't and then they did and then slowly more did and we got to a mass and eventually now, again, answering the question as simply as I can, it's about 50 watches per year and they're all sort of uh, custom orders. We do have some in stock and usually that's because um, uh, we, we make, especially with the Timascus stuff, you know, you make a watch and it's not just right for the uh for the for the patron right and they like they they say something that might might uh, start the production of a new watch instead and that watch suddenly becomes available granted perfect watch nothing wrong with it either mechanically or visually it's just not what they want um and i guess that's kind of the tricky bit with timascus uh it's every color we anodize is different every pattern is different and we're in a position now that we can also do some modifications, you know, custom engraving or uh, we did one piece with a guilloche um, three-quarter bridge. And that was kind of like a, a custom oh, right. sort of job outside of the outside of the general production. So of the 50 watches, I'd say maybe only five or six would be available per year for kind of purchase straight away. 
Mm-hmm. That's super exclusive. That's Roger Smith numbers. That's awesome. Um, and so, so if I was a collector, let's say, if I was a customer, what's the process of acquiring a, a, a hacker watch? Yeah, sure. I, I think there's two ways we've done it. And and to be completely honest, we've sold about 20 Timascus watches. We're up, up to serial number 20. And before that was the NH1. So the, the way that Timascus has sort of worked, um, it's either a customer will see a color that they like, and that's either on the Instagram or on the, on the newsletter that we have. Uh, and they might say, hey, make me a watch like this. And either that watch might be available because it's like a prototype or something like that. And we sell the watch instantly. And that's a, that's a kind of a quick sale. But the other part of the, the sort of purchasing experience, which is slightly more interesting to me because, I don't know, I think it's a little bit more artistic and it appeals to that side of my brain. But it's where the customer comes up with an idea or uh, uh, maybe maybe just a, a small concept that I can build on and that I can expand and sort of tailor to the to the customer. And obviously, the method of production that we've chosen is that it, it, even to reach fifty watches a year means that not everything is possible. Uh, mechanically, the watch has to be the same. Uh, we can't change much there. But in terms of colors of the Timascus, in terms of the engraving that we do, in terms of all those kind of auxiliary aesthetic things, we've got a lot of flexibility. So often what might happen is a customer might say, and actually I've got a gentleman in Brisbane who's, who's bought two Timascus pieces. And the second one, the first one he bought because it was it just popped up. And he said, yeah, I'll grab that one because he liked it and so on. And then as soon as it arrived, he started the conversation for the next piece. And I've been uh, going backwards and forwards with him, uh, trying to figure out exactly what he wants and making him that watch. Uh, and so nitty gritty, if you really want to get in contact and you really like what we do, the best place is, funnily enough, Instagram. Uh, I check the Instagram constantly and I'm always active there. But uh, if, you, if you're kind of interested in a little bit more formal approach to the whole process uh we've got our email and we've got a a, actually a boutique in sydney as well um in castle ray street where you can pop in and have a look at what's available and maybe some some uh samples and all the rest so i guess those are the the avenues for sale fantastic and and so to date have most of your sales been sort of local australian collectors or have you got sort of you know overseas connections our first watch our first Timascus watch, uh, we sold to Switzerland, which was the, kind of like the biggest, uh, I don't know, it was, it was, it was, we partied that night. It was the best feeling ever. And uh, that was end of last year, towards the end of last year, maybe November. And since then, we've had maybe three sales or three or four sales uh, internationally and the rest have been local. So a majority, I'd say like, you know, 15 of the of the 20 watches have been local. I'm I'm extremely thankful and very grateful for the watch community um, getting around that and and supporting us in that way because it's put us in a funny scenario where we're sort of trying to catch up to orders and uh, we don't have any watches in stock or the ones that we do are kind of like um, uh, either prototypes and th- things like that. So it's grateful. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. You've got a full order book. That's 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 the best position to be in, I would imagine. So with your production, do you currently offer both Timascus and non-Timascus movements as well? Or is it primarily just Timascus only? So currently it's just Timascus. That's our that's our focus for the next 
probably, I want to say three or four months. Um, we'll be focusing on that. And when we do sort of depart from uh, Timascus, uh, I doubt it will be a hard departure. Most likely we'll have Timascus in the movement somewhere as a signature because we've, um, we've just fallen in love with the material. It's so pretty and it's so um, unique that it would be a shame not to have it in a movement, even if it's just you know a small little dot here and there. Uh, but we, we don't have any concrete plans. And that's why I say three to four months because a lot can change in, in that period of time. But we don't have any concrete plans to, um, for example, remake the NH1. That was 25 pieces. And um, uh, they're sort of locked in time. We're not going to make an NH1.1 or something like that. The next series we'll make is going to be completely separate to the, the previous two. Okay. I was going to ask, so you're saying there's, well, you might not even be able to answer this. I'll, and I, if, if you can't answer this, I'll stop asking all the difficult questions. But I guess once you're up to full speed, if you like, and you have all the equipment you have, you're able to use it to its full kind of capabilities. What's what's the end game that you and your your dad and, and the company have in mind? Is there is there an end game? Do you have something in mind that you think once we have everything up to speed, we'll be able to create X, Y, and Z? Or are you just kind of working out as, as you go along? Um, I'd say it's more of the second second option. We, we are working it out as, as we go along. But in saying that, everyone has ideas. You know, When you make your first wheel or you make your first main plate, your mind instantly jumps to the tour beyond that you can make or the you know uh, chime mechanism that you can incorporate into the, into the movement and say, oh, well, what if I made the gongs from Timascus? How cool would that be? Or how cool would the strikers for uh, the, the minute repeater, like how cool would they be in Timascus? Or, you know, your mind just wanders so cool. Uh, and, and realistically, we have the um, technical capability yeah. to make all of those things, to, to sort of really deep dive into the um, complicated watch market. But I think there are a lot of sort of issues with, with going into that straight away. We're a really small team. There's only three of us in the factory and um, project like that might take... Uh, well, just in development, so that's without making anything. That's purely on the computer, putting the drawings, we're taking the drawings or the sketches and putting them into uh, solid models and then working on the mechanical side of the watch. That could take a whole year, you know, for three people just working on something complicated. Um, and I think in our stage of the business, we'd be very hesitant to like spend a whole year and, and sacrifice production to go down that route. And the temptation there is to go to Switzerland and say, oh, okay, someone has an existing design for a movement and we'll uh, maybe borrow elements of the design. And I'm talking mechanical design. Um, we'll borrow elements of that movement and we'll you know, buy the rest of the components that are a little bit too difficult to make. And we'll employ a Swiss engineer for six months to sort of work on the project side in Switzerland so he can manage all that sort of stuff and ship all the parts in here and we'll make a complicated watch in Australia. Um, I, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot and say something <laughs> irrational, but honestly, I think that would be regressive. Um, the path that we've chosen is that mm. to make as much here as possible 
develop as much here as possible. And I'm sure that we will call Switzerland for help. That's undeniable. We're not experts in this. But I'd like to grow things as organically as possible to that point. So I'd like, okay, let's, let's take that example of a minute repeater. We'll make it, but it might be in 10, 15 years. And the business model that we've set up, I guess, caters for that. We're a generational company and we're hiring young apprentices that we're, that we're going to see through the whole apprenticeship program and then offer them a, you know, a 10-year contract. That's our business model. Now, in, say, in answering your original question, which is what, like, what, what's your goal? Um, I'd, I'd love to see us slowly head down the complication route. Uh, and the first watch that we'll probably make, and I only say probably because we haven't made it, so it might change, is something with a, a larger power reserve and a power reserve indicator and possibly a in-house gear train uh, combined with an escapement module purchased from Switzerland. So the escapement we cannot make, both in terms of capability, in terms of machinery, but also in knowledge. And so there's a lot of companies out there that make escapement modules and uh, we'd probably purchase that and design and make the rest. So that's sort of the end goal. Uh, but it's not really the end, if if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's a, I, I guess I guess when you're working um, a small team like that, it gives you a lot of flexibility. But you don't necessarily want to take advantage of all that flexibility because you can end up kind of boxing yourself into into a corner. And like you say, you'd have to sacrifice what you're doing just now to be able to go in a different direction. And yeah, I guess with a small team, it, it seems like you're all having fun doing the projects you're doing just now. And I think that's the most important thing. You're not trying to, I think anything you're, especially your your dad has, has tried to achieve or kind of give a, a middle finger to the Swiss watch industry. I think he's achieved that already. So I think that legacy is is safe. And now, yeah, you can focus on yeah just building what it is that, that you guys have already started. So it was just more a kind of interest, interest in if you had anything big planned for, for the future. But I'll definitely be keeping an eye on what you guys are doing anyway, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think you guys have come uh, come such a huge way in, in five years. And as I said, I'm so excited to hear that, that this tremendous, you know, manufacturing base and development is happening in Australia. I mean, that's, that's really mind-blowing to me. So that's really, really cool. And I definitely encourage all our uh, listeners to check out your watches because i mean you could hear we can hear the passion uh that you put into it so it's really 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 cool oh thanks roman you've said so many nice things tonight well you caught me on a good day josh i mean there's usually one good day a week so you caught me on a good one (laughs) (laughs) yeah it helps that you you didn't like rolex so that's a good start so you got them on side straight away (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly that's exactly that's that's the magic words really rolex bad and you know i wouldn't say but but i think that kind of the stuff that you were talking about josh is kind of what really excites me about independent watchmakers wherever they are in the world the passion that independents bring and the necessity to innovate design from the ground up and invest their passion and heart and soul into their products is really inspiring to me certainly and i hope to our listeners as well i think the access part as well that's when you're what you're in our country for people to be able to have that access to independent watchmakers i think is the most important thing for in my mind anyway that you can have those conversations 
and you are potentially a flight away and you like i said earlier you guys do seem like an open book in terms of what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve and i think that's got to be a very um enticing thing for independent watch collectors that they can have that communication with you and see what you're doing and you're oh they're working on my watch now or oh i like the look of that that bridge that they've been they've been making maybe i can i can order that or something like i think that's a i think that's a huge thing and i think that's Mm. the thing that's going to keep growing the independent watch market and hopefully keep on growing it in australia as well all right well we might start uh wrapping up because you know josh you've got to go to bed because you've got a day of building watches tomorrow to come (laughs) but we really do appreciate your time um in telling us your story both from the origins and kind of the exciting stuff that's happening now and sort of a glimpse into the future That, that sounds really really cool what we might do is one of the things we do here is kind of you know, people to follow and Instagram recommendations. And it's really designed for our listeners to really discover somebody new or something new that's worth their time. Alec, did you want to kick us off with somebody to follow? Yeah, I've got one. Um, I haven't spoken to him in a little while, but the times I have spoken to him, I've always had a good good chat with him. And he is 24H original on Instagram. And he has still, to this day, probably the most gorgeous Grand Seiko that I've ever seen. And I, he did a review on it on the on the website. Um, the Grand Seiko is like four, five, nine or ten rows down um, on a on a web browser. But it's just yeah, he's got some cool watches. Got kind of eclectic taste which I always go for and like but just yeah really nice guy to to speak to 20 yeah 24h originals my instagram pick for for this week or this episode very cool i didn't didn't know about that person so that's really really cool um i might go next door so you can have a bit bit more time um the person i've got is the mechanaut so it's t-h-e-m-e-c-h-a-n-a-u-t uh, he's a lovely guy uh, from Scandinavia. Uh, what made me think of him, Josh, is when you were talking about knives. Uh, Jasper is this guy's name. He's a lovely guy. He's into watches and he's also into into knives. Yeah. So, yeah, really, really cool. Uh, really lovely guy. So I've interacted with, with, with him before. So, yeah, no, he's a champ. I might even get him on the show one of these days as well. But yeah, no, well worth a follow, Jasper. Actually, Josh, when you were talking earlier on about your friend, you've got a did you say a friend that uses the the Tamascus on their on their knives? Who what what knife maker is is that? Uh, there's a couple. I've got a couple of friends that use it, but the one that um, I saw was John Grimsmo. Ah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I've seen. Actually, when I saw when I when I watched some, some of your videos, I I could feel like a connection between the kind of stuff you were doing and the stuff that they were doing. Because I remember watching their YouTube videos. Oh, God, I can't remember how many years they've been doing YouTube videos for. But at the beginning, when they got their first CNC machine, and you could see the whole thing evolving episode by episode, and problems would come up, and then they would they would fix it. And just to see where they're at now is just amazing and it's it's so motivating for anyone who wants to make something 
um, and especially from a CNC point of view. Um, it's everyone should go and definitely check out their uh, YouTube videos and stuff because it's absolutely even if you're not into knives, it's just really fascinating to see. Are they're brothers, aren't they? Is that right? Yeah, John and Eric, they're brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And what about you, Josh? The person that I um follow on Instagram that I think is critically underrated when it comes to watchmaking specifically is a guy called Killian. And Killian's based out in the um, Black Forest in Germany. And his Instagram handle is watchmaker.kl. And uh, Killian is probably one of the best watchmakers I know. Um, oh, wow. He's quite young. I think he's kind of like late 20s. And um, he's been working on his project, which is making his own watch, uh, for the last, oh, I want to say like four years or five years. And he has, again, like what Alex said, he's, um, he's logged his entire progress on Instagram. And uh, I've plugged him a couple of times, but uh, I can't plug him enough because we talk, you know, nearly every day. It's, uh, it's fascinating to see how his mind works. And he's helped me a lot with a lot of the stuff that I've done here. And um, I, w- I would like to say that I've helped him a little bit. <laughs> um, I think the equation is much more balanced in his favor. Yeah, I guess long story short, he, um, he shows what it takes to make a watch by hand. A lot of people, especially now in the last five years or so, have claimed to make watches by hand. But I can tell you for free that there are a handful, I'm talking less than five people on the world currently that are making watches entirely by hand. And Killian's one of those people. So he's a great guy to follow. Shoot him a message. Uh, he's like a genius when it comes to all things mechanical. So uh, if, you, if you have any watchmaking related issues, uh, hit him up. That's awesome. Okay, I think, Roman, I think you've got your next um, podcast guests lined up already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, locked in. I was typing away while you were talking. No, no, I don't, no, that's not true, Josh. I was listening, hanging on your every word. But no, that's awesome. And that's exactly kind of why we have this section is for us to, for all of us really, to discover really cool people. And it's always the people behind these things, right? Mm-hmm. Is what we want to know. So that's, no, thank you for that. That's a fantastic discovery for all of us. Yeah. All righty, Josh. Now, where can our listeners find you? How do, where are you located? Tell us all your details. So uh, easiest place is on Instagram. We post a lot of photos of our watches and all sorts of, you know, other projects that we do, um, like our apprentice Andrew is making a clock. So we'll post about the clock. But our Instagram handle is uh, Nicholas Hacko Watch. And uh, if you start typing in that into the search browser for Google, you'll see two websites. One is clockmaker.com.au, and that's where we do all of our secondhand watch dealing. So we buy and sell all sorts of Swiss mechanical watches. We still live off of the Swiss in some way or another. Somebody has to. Um, But then you'll see our actual uh, sort of brand website that's currently, unfortunately, at the time of this podcast is is under development. So all you're going to see is just a bunch of pictures and a video um, and not even a contact uh, address, but that's how little time we have. We're too busy busy focused (laughs) on making the bloody website than the website. It's the way it should be. You guys are making stuff. The website can wait. Exactly. That's. I think that's fine. I, I had a look. Yeah, I saw the video thing um, earlier on, and I did a, a podcast with Anthony on on Monday, and one of the the 
the watchmakers that was recommended by our guest i went to go to their website and their website was didn't didn't work at all so i think i don't think there's anything wrong with the website that that you've got there's there's definitely enough there to get people kind of salivating about what it is you do you get some nice images and stuff there so it's, it's definitely still worth uh worth checking out i think good well thank you alex i'm one step above crap <laughs> yeah yeah that's kind of our company motto here so yeah you're in good company no well that's our mission statement we're not quite there yet you know that's our vision (laughs) yeah yeah you're like half a step right yeah we're getting there we're far away from switzerland we're work in progress it's it's we're we're all about honesty and integrity in the process i love it Roman. i love it but that's brilliant no, so look, thank you, Josh. I think it's been a really, really interesting conversation, and I'm really glad we got you. We got you on the show. Um, I, I found it really, really interesting, and like your passion and your, you know, integrity really shines through. So I hope everyone really gets in touch, and we, you know, we sell out your, you know, production for the next six years oh, on the back of this episode. I'd love that. <laughs> thank you, Roman, and thanks, Alex. <laughs> Real, real pleasure. Hopefully, we can have you back on in the future as well and see what where you're at, because um, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how you guys go over the over the coming years. Because you're just, you've just got started and you're already in such an exciting place. So, I'll be keeping track for sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. Thanks. That's brilliant. And just the last few words, we say that all the time. You know, Fifth Wrist, we were set up as a platform by enthusiasts and for enthusiasts. So, if you want to join us, contribute, write reviews, or even come on the podcast. Just get in touch. Uh, follow Fifth Wrist on Facebook and Instagram on, or on our website at fifthwrist.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Follow me. I'm at Times Roman AU. And I want to thank my co-host, Alex, at The Watch Regulator. This has been great. Pleasure. Pleasure as always. Everyone, stay on time. is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at fifthwrist.com and join the movement.